Welcome to the podcast of Small Differences with Ian and Otis. Welcome, welcome to the podcast of, of Small Differences. Uh, I'm Otis Anderson. This is Ian Blumenfeld. We're excited today to start off with uh, some some big news for us. We're launching our Patreon page. Yay! Uh, yay! Sure. Yes, you can go find it at Patreon.com/slash/differences. Um, right now, we've got a three dollar tier and a thirty dollar tier. The three dollar tier is a sticker and also better audio. <laughs> like the chief benefit is you will have a podcast with better audio in the future, I would say. But the sticker is rather nice. I my wife designed it. I I, I rather like yeah, it. It actually it is pretty cool. Um, and then can there's I, a. Can I get one? Yes. Yes. <laughs> I actually I. I only have, I, or like, I'm ordered another batch. So I have, like, in case anyone donates to us, everyone else gets first pick. So when the new batch comes, then I'm actually going to give one to me and to you. I haven't taken one either. I Although see. my four-year-old my four-year-old managed to claim one by scribbling on it. Um, she's the only one who's gotten one so far. Yeah, they tend to do that. Yeah. Um, and then our we have a $30 tier, which is a kind of a subscription to the Ian and Otis Professional Consulting Services. Um, so, uh, we appreciate whatever support you can give. And, and we look forward to getting all of you better audio. Yeah, no, we, we want to do better at the technical details. Both of us are the type of people that care about that kind of stuff. Using those resources to, I don't know, pay a producer (laughs) would be, uh, I think money well spent. I'm sure a lot of you are tired of listening to my uh, editing <laughs> which will probably peak my skill will peak at some point and it's it's getting close i'm excited also to introduce another guest here um we have peter fishman and i will refer to as fish for the rest of this this audio fish comes to us from ease currently he where he is the chief strategy officer how's it going fish hey how's it going good to see you guys I'm excited to be guest number two on the pod. We are excited to have you. Uh, give us, tell us a little bit of your story, sure, um, so that people can get familiar with you. Sure, excellent. So, uh, my background is um, I have a, a PhD in economics. So my training is actually quite similar to Otis's. Um, I dropped out of the academic world and uh, did jump into the sports analytics world briefly, um, where I ran a department of one, just myself, uh, doing analytics at the Eagles. Um, I then basically became a consultant, like many sort of uh, ex-academics, only to discover I really wanted to be in the Bay Area doing tech. Uh, I've jumped around for the last decade at a number of uh, sort of similar sized and style companies, um, having some uh, you know, experience running data and analytics teams at startups of size 100 plus people. Um, I started at a company called Playdom, which was doing uh, social games at a time where that was taking off. Uh, I then transitioned to a company called Yammer, where, of course, I met and worked with Otis. And then I worked at a company called Zenefits, which was in the HR space, um, doing sort of B2B HR software. And then I worked at a company called Open Door, which is um, in the real estate space. And now today I work at a company called Ease, which is uh, cannabis on demand. 
I'm I'm guessing that there was a lot of more so than other startups like these had some some interest in like the national election picture. Um, yeah, absolutely. So um, is you know any any business that's in cannabis today um, cares very deeply about sort of the cannabis ecosystem or should um, any any cannabis business that you think will survive um, today will survive as a fact of essentially the cannabis industry's success. So. You know, we're we're deeply invested in basically the entire sort of cannabis ecosystem, under, understanding a lot of the nuance and regulation that almost changes on uh, a weekly basis. But obviously, the election and uh, some of the results of the election are very relevant to our business. And then also, obviously, to uh, you personally as well as me in the end, like a, I think that was meaningful. Did you did you watch the election? Um, or are you, so, are you a so, day after, so, are you a day after person? Uh, so in all fairness, I am a, uh, huge Duke basketball fan. Oh, and God. The, uh, <laughs> the, uh, I have a, a love of Duke and, uh, the, uh, the, the election was split screen against, um, a Duke Kentucky basketball game that I was also very into, but yes, I followed the election very, very, very closely. Um, cared deeply about um, a lot of the outcomes and, and also California outcomes. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I think there were a lot of uh, interesting things that happened on Tuesday night. Yeah. More, yeah. Like, Duke basketball was clearly a totalizing ideology that, <laughs> that takes over a person. Uh, fair enough. I, I got indoctrinated at, a, you know, age 17 and, uh, you know, hasn't left me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I was I was I was kind of tracking it live on my phone. I I can't watch the coverage anymore. Mm. Uh, it's sort of similar to to like like uh, reading uh, reading uh, uh, reading reading like uh, uh, sports articles that like just like the people who they put on these things like don't really know what they're talking about. <laughs> And the ones with a really deep knowledge are all like writing their own blogs yeah. or like in the case of sports, like work for the athletic. <laughs> for for this election, I thought it was interesting. Like Nate Silver had was yeah. actually on ABC. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I mean, for me, like that's as like when you are like, yeah, that's that's like the one that's like the one exception. The Otherwise, they're one. like just kind of yeah. telling you information you already have by following what's going on on 538. <laughs> I mean, so there is this sort of tension between the audience you're trying to reach yeah, and yeah, the yeah. audience. Yeah, no, no, I, I mean, I, I, <laughs> I don't know that familiar. I don't know yeah. that. I don't know that the three the, the three of us represent yeah. um, exactly the right audience that should be ABC's target. To be to be clear, like the, uh, I'm not making a judgment on national on like the way that national television runs its business. Okay. Like I am very clearly not their target audience. Sure. I'm merely making a statement around like. Uh, what you know you know basically uh like what should my choices be in this scenario and i feel like it's it is a reasonable choice for me to like basically follow the live updates on models that i that i like trust slash am interested in trust is a probably a heavy word there um you know versus like actually watching a bunch of people blather on tv and you know fish and i have talked about this previously and like there, there, like there is an interesting thing to why Nate Silver chose this as his career. Yeah, which is like he 
purposefully was like, this is an industry where a lot of people don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> it, it's sort of always easier to make better predictions when the standard is low. Yeah. Uh, I would say, uh, I, I, I would probably couch that a little bit differently in terms of like, uh, it is easier to make valuable predictions when the standard is low. Like, we don't want to get too deep into the actual, like, mechanics of election night because, yeah. again, there are politics, there are podcasts that actually know what they're talking about. Yeah. But I thought it was, like, interesting from a data, like, a data scientist point of view to, like, particularly to watch at 538 tonight. Yeah. Um, yeah, one, they, they, they have a tough beginning of the night. <laughs> yeah. Like, I think that the, the mechanics of that are kind of interesting. And yeah. then also, like... Like, I had, like, some strong empathy for Nate Silver being on, like, clearly, like, he's on he's TV. He's like, oh, all my crap broke. Yeah, he's on <laughs> TV. on national television. He's, what do I do? <laughs> he's supposed to be in a meeting where he's contributing, and he's, like, trying to, you know, he's on his laptop trying trying yeah. to fix stuff. Um, yeah. No, I, I, was, I was watching their model and saw the swing, and I was like, oh, something broke. <laughs> Uh, because, like, there's no amount of information that could possibly have come in this early that should shift the results by this much. <laughs> I mean, I think that there should be a theme uh, of, of the podcast, which is always, you know, gut-checking work. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. You know, very often do you get a result that, you know, you, you must think is correct, and only to say, I'm not entirely sure that's correct. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I think wild swings are totally okay. I mean, I think I mentioned you know, coming from, like, the sports analytics world, you know, sometimes a game is all but locked up only to have a few events just yeah. massively change the outcome or a few signals just massively change the expected outcome. Yeah. Um, so I'm used to, I think anybody that's, you know, watched uh, a lot of, you know, sporting events kind yeah. of are, is very used to, oh, there's, you know, a 5-6 chance this team wins. And now it's like, wait a second, this is a total toss-up game. Uh, wait a second, there's a 99% chance this team wins. Yeah, yeah. I think that's well, a good point. Like, it's, because it, like, clearly, like, post-hoc, everyone has decided that that model was misbehaving. And at the time, like, 538 was clearly saying that it was misbehaving. Mm -hmm. But you can imagine a world where the wild swings are coming from strongly correlated errors between districts and what the model says and you get a few samples in and like they're all going in one direction you would want your model to be like oh god no <laughs> um but also like i don't know i i don't feel like this was probably that that was probably the case in this yeah it's easy to judge post oh, yeah yeah i mean like i totally hear your point around like like sports games i I feel like for that, uh, like I I have an intuitive feel for what that looks like at the end of a game. Sure. Like when there's you know where like the marginal information like really starts to matter. Mm -hmm. uh, it's like this kind of felt like it's like well the game just started mm -hmm. and the running back broke yeah. for a twenty yard gain sure. and now I'm telling you that like well given that this team has a ninety nine percent chance of winning sure. <laughs> and but, like that you know, that's where it it like kind of that that that's like why i looked at that and i was like okay it looks like something broke yeah i mean i i think you know uh there's this like incredible tension between trying to size up how much like yeah. early signal you know comes in or um or you know what you know how to even do this correctly i think yeah. you know one of the things that 
um, I think it just always proves out to be difficult is, you know, making predictions in a world of small data. Yep. Um, and this is clearly um, one of those contexts. And, you know, I think, you know, one of the things that I always talk about, um, it, you know, in analytics is this like study from the 70s that I love on, uh, on weather predictors. Mm -hmm. So they find that the weather forecaster, if you sort of plot on the sort of horizontal axis, the forecasted chance of rain, mm -hmm. and on the vertical axis, the actual observed probability of rain. Mm -hmm. The weather forecaster does pretty great. Lands on the forty-five degree line. Yeah, uh, it's like an. Inc it's it, you know people perceive that to be something that people never get right. Yeah. And for, because of salience, maybe yeah. they, they said, oh, they said it wasn't going to rain, and then it rains, and yeah. they're, they're pissed. In fact, weather forecasters are amazing because they get fast, frequent, and accurate feedback. Yeah. So they get, you know, a lot of feedback. Yeah, yeah. You know, they, they find it out by the end of the day, and they, you know, they, they certainly know whether it rained or not. Whereas here, they're not getting all, you know, that many chances to get real feedback on the way their model does prediction. So it, it's really unsurprising to me if if they discover a lot of flaws with it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's why, like, I, 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 I have significant empathy uh -huh. For his, for like what he had to go through that night. Just like, can we get, should we engage in some irresponsible speculation? <laughs> like, would he, like, I love irresponsible speculation. I, I mean, it's one of my hobbies. I feel like that, that model has to be like, you train it on polls on every other day of the year. And then on election night, you've got to incorporate returns, which are a completely different data source. And, uh, and and exit polls, which are also... I believe 538 does not use, even use... They don't use polls. the exit polls. Yes, huh. um, because they're... Um, they don't trust them. They don't trust them. They, they're, they're, the exit polls tell you less than the... Like, again, like the media tends to talk about them in ways yeah, that yeah. make it more complicated. They tell you the party identification yeah. of the people coming out, not who they voted for. Yeah. I mean, I would... Um, I, I, if, like, I were building a model to do this, I would still probably use that as a source i just wouldn't incorporate it causally right well and the other thing is like you've been if you've got polls in your model already mm -hmm. your exit poll oh yeah yeah no, would be, be possibly um confusing uh, to interpret what that would be so like i i imagine like i imagine there's a lot of ways you could do this right where you basically have what looks like a financial forecast where you've got like a projected probability for each seat and then you just check off the results one by one and you don't alter the projected probability from your polls only data. Um, I mean, they're, they're running simulations. So, so it's, this is as, where I so want the irresponsible speculation, yeah, right? As like, far as I understand their model, like, <laughs> like they're running simulations to like get to, to like get the probability. And they're incorporating, like, what it seems like the what we learned from the yeah. weird wild swing is that there is a big over, like, there is a big variable in, in the model, which is, like, what is the popular vote going to be across the country? And that yeah, was the thing that was probably responding to the early returns from the southeast in particular, yeah. where it seems like Democrats were underperforming massively. Is that like, I don't know, like, does that pass the smell test? Sure, by me. I mean, I, you know, again, I think, um, I think, I think it's a, a little bit, uh, you know, unfair or 
or uh, a high bar to clear that um, you know th these models should should be able to you know sort of the tough part about being a Bayesian is actually knowing how much yeah. to yep. incorporate a prior. Like it's obnoxious to clap. It's obnoxious to clap on a podcast, but I would clap for that. Right? <laughs> like, like the only problem with Bayesianism, yeah. Bayesianism has long been like it's true, like it's it's mean, but it's true. Is like no two Bayesians can meet on their priors, right? Like there, so you're really basically hard. saying like the only problem with Bayesianism is you have to think about what you're trying to do. It, it's like it makes it explicit that statistics is actually a rhetorical science. I mean, <laughs> like sure. So the other way, you're is, pretending that it's not a rhetorical that science, it's not, yeah, yeah, and then get a bunch of garbage out the back end. Yeah, but it's still hard. Like that, like that agreement on what, like how much should you adjust your prior, and which prior should you yeah. adjust when you yeah, have yeah. a model like let's not pretend like again i'm asking for irresponsible speculation yeah. let's we'll, i'm not going to pretend it would be easy to make this model yeah. but also is like it it's fun to me to think about it because like all of the other projections they're doing up until election day are like curated by hand the model is adjusted and then it's like analyzed and then something gets published to the website you know, on election night. Yeah, it's like live. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they've they've got to be back testing too. The for for sure. Like, there's no like for sure. you, for sure. you you would be irresponsible if you were not back testing a model like that. What would like? What would you like? How would you back test a model where you know you've got different data, a new data source? Yeah, you've got a I data mean, source it, you just don't use on a day to day basis. So so you have that data in past elections like that's the, that's how you're going to back test not, the not thing. really yeah i would do you right. like you were you like this is government like you've worked with government agencies before yeah. you often you know that that's like a human pushed api a so, lot of the time so so if if you were going to collect that data you probably wouldn't have it mm -hmm. the fact that they've been running this exact process since whatever it was 2012 like if if it were me doing this, I I would be collecting and logging all of that data as it came in, and I now granted I don't know if if they're doing that, but but I would be surprised if they weren't doing that in say like 2014 and 2016 at least with consistent measurement uh, with a consistent measurement I, I style mean, and I, I mean or or like knowing kind of like how how you made the modifications i mean you you take your best guess sure. on a yep. on on a back test but like certainly you're you're going to try to do something in that in that region now the issue is like back tests don't save you right like yeah, they only they're a game you play against your past self yeah they like they like cause you to uh like so they reduce global overfitting but they will cause you to overfit in like other ways so like if you go to talk to quants they'll basically tell you that like uh general heuristic rule of thumb is that your actual returns are going to be about half what your back test shows because like you're still overfit on the back test <laughs> It's it's just that you don't actually know where until you start doing the prospective stuff, and so I suspect that what that what the five thirty eight model is like actually running into 
is that they they do run through like a really rigorous testing process it's just that because of the slow feedback loops like they only find out when uh when the election night actually starts when they're uh where they're overfit uh and then the models will take some wild swings and Nate silver has to like be pounding on his computer on national television i i imagine you could solve that problem with really sophisticated like some pretty sophisticated data engineering about like imagine like giving unit testing basically right like what happens if nine districts break this way yeah and by random chance what does my model do yeah so so with with scenario testing like you can you can basically do like scenario testing and some sort of stability measures um that the issue with that is that then you run into the problem of like you're making your prior heavier so like you kind of have to balance that against the information coming in right because it was it was sort of like fish was saying like well what happens if like everything actually does go in one direction like mm -hmm. like you want the model to be responsive to that uh, in some way and like i think that we saw examples of this in 2016 where like they were the only model that was responding to the early information coming in then which was good yeah which was good like basically saying oh like this race is going to be a lot closer than than like people people are giving it credit for and they were saying very early on like it's actually going to come down to these four states uh and you know and if like hillary clinton does not clear these areas like she has very few pathways to win Right. So, so like it's that kind of balance that's really hard. So I, I think my my read on it is like either like they would need much more sophisticated data engineering than they're probably doing, like may not be worthwhile even, yeah. or like that's just that that's how the model's gonna be. I mean, sometimes. yeah, like I, yeah, like I, I I I'm skeptical that data engineering would solve this problem, like. I think as, as as information comes in, like you're, it will reveal areas where your assumptions were correct and areas where you've overfit to the past, and like like that information, like if it was knowable, you would have found it before you know before the whole thing got started. How much does it suck to be the guy in the meeting on the laptop trying to fix <laughs> Been there. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Um, and and things suddenly become so much harder to yeah. produce very simple results yeah. when uh, the spotlight is like shining directly on your face and you're trying to do something that you've done a million times over. But um, you know, I certainly uh, am familiar with that type of problem. Yeah, yeah, it, it's it seems like it's silly, right? In 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 like context of the stakes of the election, but yeah. like my feels were just immediately like. Oh yeah, that's what it looks like when I'm on a laptop all meeting long, <laughs> yeah. trying to fix something that I know is broken that probably maybe no one even really understands but me. But but that's like being discussed in that moment. Oh, gross! That's just the just worst so feeling rough. in the world. There's a lot of squirming going on uh, as we're taping this. And yeah. just, I think we're all like, feeling the same thing. Yeah, yeah no, I all, felt terrible for him. Um, we've all been there. Okay, so so I just have to ask. Having worked for the Eagles, did you ever think they were going to win a Super Bowl? 
Well, I I used the joke that uh, my goal was to put a championship team around Nick Foles. Uh-huh. I just didn't think that that would happen a decade after <laughs> I was there. Okay, so you're taking credit, basically. Uh, that, that couldn't be. That would be the furthest uh, stretch of the truth possible. My my impression is you did not have a large impact on the Eagles' decision making. Um, I I think um, you know I was I was a, an analytics intern there, which uh-huh. which I think accurately reflects um, I, I think accurately reflects uh, the state of uh, affairs of uh, analytics in the you know in the two thousands. Yeah. Um, I think you know you see a lot of industries where. You've got these sort of wonks that are sort of playing on the edges, uh, you know, politics being a great one, um, that eventually become a bigger and bigger voice in the room as as data becomes more sophisticated, as their techniques and as their accuracy becomes better. So, so if I were to kind of like put a uh, almost like a a theme of how your career has sort of developed, like you you were almost there to like see to like see the transition company leadership and like executive teams like struggled with how to bring data into their decision making so so, um you know we're we're taping this right adjacent to zynga yeah and um zynga really started this incredible revolution in the tech side Mm -hmm. where um that was a company that was getting ahead based on using facebook data effectively Mm -hmm. um and then all the companies wanted that. Yeah. So uh, there was this uh, strong movement um, in B2B companies to develop like B2C companies. Mm-hmm. So it used to be the case that B2B companies would make their money by selling to one IT person. Mm-hmm. And really the skill was your Rolodex um, plus your sort of um, upper right quadrantness. Uh-huh. Uh, your uh, ability to convince Gartner to put you on a graph. <laughs> um, and um, in the sort of late 2000s, there became this push towards the consumerization of enterprise, largely driven by smartphones mm-hmm. and people's unwillingness to use Blackberries. Mm-hmm. No offense to Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> uh, None taken there. Uh, and uh, And with all these sort of uh, enterprise softwares that were appearing, uh, you know, in people's uh, business world uh, that they would have a say in. Yeah. Um, people wanted to develop it like uh, consumer products, and the leading consumer products were really starting to use data effectively, both mm-hmm. based on available data, you know, computational power, you know, cheapness of of storing it, um, improved technique, mm-hmm. um, ability to actually draw real inference. So with all of that, um, you know, I think that the executives of these types of companies sort of said, oh, yeah, this data thing. Um, we definitely should, uh, we should be do using data. that. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and uh, <laughs> it, it's a caricature, but you, you, you now, you know, you really have started to see the elevation of, um, you know, you know, wonks, not just in the sports world, yeah. not just in the politics world, uh, but now obviously in the tech world as a function of, um, you know, capability and influence mm-hmm. um, and and just sort of that um, that FOMO of the sort of uh, exec group of there's something in this stuff and we, yeah. we want to take advantage of it. Given what you've seen, kind of like 
you know, what are the sort of like hardest or, or most salient points around like getting, uh, like helping executives understand what you're doing yeah. and like getting them to listen to you? So I think, you know, I, I think that's just like a misnomer right there. Yeah. So, so the mindset of, look, I've got all the data, I know all the answers, listen to me, mm-hmm. tends to be actually the thing that works most against data folks in the exec room. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a certain hubris that that all of us have as a function of being data people. I mm-hmm. think the reason that we get into this space is we think we have a perspective on the world. We think that data slash reality supports that. Mm-hmm. And we construct an argument using sort of our um, capability, mm-hmm. which tends to be the ability to pull, summarize, and draw inference out of data. Mm-hmm. and. Um, and then we think, okay, well, this is how the thing X should be done. Mm-hmm. Um, that tends to actually work really against data folks, mm-hmm. I think. Um, and, and this sort of idea that, well, now data is plentifully available and people know what to do with it. So it's just like one step forward after the other until basically all decision making just looks like uh, you know a box where you feed data in an outcomes decision is definitely not how it goes. So, you know, my experience has been always like two steps forward, one step back, two steps forward, one step back, Um, where basically, you know, this this sort of uh, politics example that we were given um, uh, earlier ends up being this sort of very salient point for people in the room without that sort of uh, data background or with the background uh, that is uh, like insecure around data mm-hmm. um, to say, wait a second, this is no better than you know me, you know, <laughs> licking a finger and sticking it up in the air. Mm-hmm. So um, I think I think really the evolution looks like okay, these are the set of problems where we can be really well informed by the data, and then that blob keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger until. Um, there are data people sitting at that table. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of how I've seen the evolution in the tech world. I, th- I mean, I always feel like the like the success or failure of like a data the data part department of a company depends on what problems they pick to work on. Mm-hmm. Right? Like and the worst thing that can happen to you is you just basically get assigned to work on a problem that data is not actually going to solve. Right, like you, you feel like that that's like the difference maker between um, like a good job and a bad job is like picking the problems that you're working on. Yeah, so I, I think you know part of that is making your own block. <laughs> mm-hmm. So uh, you know, I do think that you want to be uh, to have essentially good, good, uh, a good guess about what types of problems are going to have returns, have value by, you know, uh, by addressing them with, you know, the data set that you have. Mm -hmm. So very often people will look to data problems and they'll say, you know, if we knew the answer to this, this would be valuable and this would change our decision. Well, like the likelihood that, you know, you're going to get a result that would actually be decision, you know, changing uh, might be very small. So I see that um, I see that this problem is 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 about picking good problems as much as being told to to you know work on thing X and that be the right thing. Right. One of the things that executives want the most out of their data departments is like there's a KPI drop of some sort, mm-hmm. and then explain like tell me the story that explains this KPI drop. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Yeah. So uh, this, uh, you know, you in, a, in an earlier episode of this show uh, dropped this term um, and then didn't really go ahead. And, and uh, you know, this is an inside baseball term as in a, uh, this is even smaller inside baseball because this is just a term that, you know, we use. Um, which is uh, bear patrolling. Yes. Uh, so, you can explain the joke if you want. Uh, no, I, I think you're better at uh, Eddie Simpson's reference. We'll, you'll put a Simpson, we'll put a link to the to the Simpsons clip in the show notes, but it, it is like, it is a joke on when you do this, like, um, this looking at these KPI drops, you're invariably doing post hoc or after hoc fallacy, right? You're like, well, this thing happened before that thing, and therefore this thing happened because of that thing. I think you've blown a great opportunity to explain it in even more detail. Yeah. Um, in, in, in the Simpsons episode that we're referring to, there, uh, you know, uh, Homer arranges essentially a bear patrol. and To, to protect Springfield from bears. <laughs> and, and, uh, and he proudly proclaims that the bear patrol is working. Yeah, uh, because of because there's no bears. Then, <laughs> a bear in sight. Um, and only to have Lisa uh, counter him by saying, by that logic, this rock keeps away tigers. Yes. And essentially, um, Homer then decides to ask to buy the rock because <laughs> of uh, its effectiveness, and there are no tigers. There's a certain element of... Um, anti-authoritarianism that like, draws people into data science <laughs> that leads them to be like to make these types of jokes when they're asked to work on these types of problems right like um, but at the same time like working on like when people ask you to work on something that seems important even if you're like uh like I don't think that there's a prayer that a useful answer is going to, to come out of this. So, so, I mean, we use the term bear patrol pejoratively, yeah. um, and and it is sort of um, there is this imagination in the world of sort of uh, analytics that what analytics is is a bunch of dashboards on TVs across a company, mm -hmm. and um, and then the KPI of interest. Uh, drops and by seeing that drop, what does KPI stand for? Uh, it's a key performance indicator. And what does it mean? Um, it's a measurement <laughs> of something key to performance. Um, and 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 actually, this is there is a skill um, to picking the right ones. Yeah. So um, one of the responsibilities of an analytics team is to pick um, uh, actionable yeah. KPIs. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so actually, it's a, a great point. Um, not only is the job not just to watch a certain metric um, <laughs> bouncing up and down on a TV, it's first off to pick the right ones. And, and then secondly, um, typically the, the process by which you investigate um, yeah. a, a change in one of these metrics, something happened and people often, you know, do, you know, our, our brains are really hardwired. Um, to notice correlation, yeah. I think that there's a go. This thing moved, and this thing moved. Uh oh. <laughs> and and you know this this has to you know you know date back what billions of years, yeah. and that that sort of recognizing of these two things sim simultaneously happening makes you think you know if A and B happen together, it could be that A cause B, it could be that B cause A, or it could be that C cause both A and B. Yeah. And um, quite often it is C causing both A and B, but you know our minds. Are just sort of set up to go well I'm, I'm you know looking what is that you know a b relationship and yeah. this causes that yeah yeah i mean I, I i've always had a lot of empathy for 
you know, for the people whose job it is to deliver to a KPI and then like it drops out from under them and they're like, ah, right. Because like, I, I would do that too. If, if like, that's the thing that I was accountable for, you know, for, for, or, or that I was responsible for, for like a given organization. Um, I feel like when that stuff happens, like, like the thing that makes it hard to deal with is, uh, I, I is really twofold, right? One is, uh, one is, one is, one is basically like everything uh, gets in a big rush to like try to figure out well, well, why did this just happen? Uh, it, whereas like in ninety five percent of cases, you should really be taking your time. Like it is telling you something, but like whether whether you find out in the next two hours or the next two weeks, like doesn't matter that much, and getting the answer right matters a lot. Uh, and then, and then the second piece is that when stuff like that happens, also like people very rarely take a step back and ask the question, like, "Hey, wait a minute! Like, is, is this even something we should be tracking?" Versus like a different choice. Sure. I mean, you know, you wanna, you, you know, you don't want to be in a boy cries wolf situation, yeah, yeah. right? So you want to tune your type one and type two yeah. error propensities. Yeah. Um, and basically, um, what. What typically is going on when a KPI drops is, uh, you know, usually a bug in your data. <laughs> so you yeah, know, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's I think uh, yeah. very often it's it's uh, you know that you know the computer got unplugged. Yeah. Uh, you know is 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 the primary thing. Now it's one thing if that raises a red flag and then yeah. that prompts a deeper investigation. Yeah. But typically, um, like you said, when you're uh, when you're performing against a number. Yeah. Any change to that number, whether it's driven by a holiday, yeah. a data bug, um, uh, you know, something else that's going on in the world. Yeah. Your first reaction is, ah! let's go figure it out. <laughs> and then, yeah. you know, it's almost like it's kind of you know, very similar to the description of Nate Silver fixing the model yeah, on the yeah. fly, which yeah. is you have to go ahead and address it. And getting it right two weeks from now, yeah. if it is a serious issue, is catastrophic yeah um so so actually like you know taking the time and very diligently pulling out the true uh you know cause of that uh change to the kpi is not necessarily the optimal thing to do mm -hmm. um I, I think you follow from a business perspective yeah. yeah yeah i mean i i i do know of at least a few cases where like where like high level kpis like dropped out uh and that was actually a signal that the business was going to fail mm -hmm. where it's like customer acquisition was completely based around some kind of seo thing and then google shifted their search algorithm and their adwords algorithm and all of a sudden like like you basically saw this drop in traffic and this commensurate rise in cac uh and and it's, and like right at that moment even though you've got you know 12 months worth of runway still in the bank, you basically know that you're done. Um, well, I mean, I, I would challenge that a little bit, right? So it, it I means mean, that, I, I actually know a company that well, like, well, so, this happened to, but. Well, so if, yeah. you know, if you, if you took that seriously, yeah. presumably if you had 12 months of runway, yeah. you could change your business model or you could bet into Google reverting yeah. or you could, uh, you know, if you took that data quite seriously, 
you know, presumably there are alternative paths. Maybe yeah. it's not ideal, right? So it's always tough to stomach. Yeah. My, my, you know, my Amazon stock today is worth less yeah. than it was yeah. you know, Sorry. a or, month ago. Or like, or like rather you, you basically learned in that moment that over the next six months, you're going to need to try Absolutely. something else mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and see if, and see if you can get some other acquisition funnel working. Sure. Um, which, which is basically what they did. Uh, I mean, in retrospect, like when the whole company is oriented towards one thing, like it's kind of hard to shift it quickly. <laughs> but, uh, but like certainly that that ended up like reprioritizing like their uh, their business roadmap. Definitely can be hard to predict the future. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, unsurprisingly, a lot of uh, you know companies, you know, you know make good decisions and yeah. bad decisions and yeah. a lot of that gets revealed just based on how things play out. Yeah. I mean, I think selection bias would tell you, like, given that you're working as a data scientist in a given company, your KPIs probably are, like, your core metrics are probably something that doesn't move a whole lot from day to day, mm -hmm. that doesn't crash a whole, a whole bunch, um, and, like, is kind of hard to diagnose because if you are, have a successful business, then typically you've like optimized against yeah. your like your core metrics to some degree. Right. So for instance, um, the company I work at Ease, um, unsurprisingly we sell uh, we you know we facilitate more cannabis transactions on weekends than weekdays. Mm -hmm. So when it goes from Sunday to Monday, yeah. nobody freaks out because <laughs> like, uh, volume is down by seventy five percent. Right. Nobody, nobody freaks out partially because we've internalized. Yeah. I mean, that's a very easy one to an intuitive yeah. one uh, to internalize. Similarly, you know, when a Monday is a, a Labor Day, that's an outperformance, and we're not yeah. high fiving because yeah. we're we're massively. Uh, you know, out, outperforming the typical Monday's performance. Um, so some of these are very easy to internalize. Now, yeah. I, I challenge you a little bit, Otis, on, on saying, you know, the company's you know highest level metrics, you know, should be stable and, and, and responsive. I think one, of, you know, one of the keys to choosing the right KPIs are what are the things that are going to be actual, valuable to you know watch on a you know a day to day or hour by hour basis. Um, and you know ones that you think provide real signal and that you should dive into or have sort of uh, actions you can take as a function of seeing changes in that metric. Yeah, and if I think eventually those 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 do stay in the long run, those do stabilize. And yeah, maybe you'll change them out, but also maybe you'll probably keep them up on the dashboard and make sure that they don't crash. I think the hardest yeah. thing is to actually remove uh, data. I think yeah. uh, to curate. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I I I've been at. Uh, a number of companies where these are a valuable set of metrics, but then you create new metrics which also provide value that you also make decisions based on, and ultimately it's it's sort of like a Dunbar's rule where it's like there's there's too many things that you have to you know keep track of, mm -hmm. and um, that curation ability is really hard because whenever you're taking away your attention from a metric, you're essentially saying that this thing that we make decisions on today and we think is valuable. Uh, we're going to deprioritize that, and I think that that's a real um, challenging skill. Yeah, of a company. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I've always like the way that I've always tended to kind of approach these these sorts of problems is to, like, at at, at any point in time, and you know, probably in in like a three to six month kind of cadence, like 
look at like well what what is the fundamental equation by which like this company drives value in the world and uh, and then like what are the actual components to that and then you can look at those components and 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 those are the things that you should that you should be measuring right yeah. so so like if you're you know if you're doing like pure pure content like kind of like internet content and your monetization pathway is ads right then like you you're you know you're basically tracking page views and the and like repeat and then like your click through rate yeah so yeah. i had my first boss in analytics was a yeah. physicist yeah and all the physicists love to write equations that cancel so in in yeah. your example it's basically page views times dollars per page view yeah now that t that tells you how many dollars you know yeah. your company is producing the value that it's producing now dollars per page view is probably well characterized by yeah. a click-through rate or something yeah. page views is maybe characterized really nicely by you know repeat rates yeah. and just AUs or a, yeah. a, of some sort so um, so I, I love that sort of component look and breaking apart yeah. um, basically the thing that you know to be core of value uh, breaking it into its pieces yeah yeah, and I've I've always found that like you do it that way, it starts to also become clear like when your business model is shifting, mm -hmm. because if if like for instance all of a sudden you you know you like put a subscription tier in, and so then 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 like you can look at that equation and see oh now there's two pieces to it, mm -hmm. right and. Uh, and we have to balance one versus the other, and then as as like one grows or shrinks, like it can also tell you, okay, like actually we should be moving everything over here now, um, and 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 like it kind of just like brings brings like a little bit of framing in as opposed to just saying, oh, I want to look at this random thing or that random thing. So I think where these uh, these types of sort of uh, component pieces, models of lifetime value, get in trouble mm -hmm. is that it tends to be very hard to have both a short-run view of lifetime value and yeah. a long-run view. Mm -hmm. Do I run into that one? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, ultimately, um, here is actually a place where I feel like um, the analytics and data science community can have a really, uh, you know, step forward in terms of humility. Mm -hmm. So can I can I pause this to kind of sure. explain the components of like what I think we're about to dive in? So like a lifetime value model is essentially you take your customer, how long you expect to keep them, which you can compute as a hazard rate of a arbitrary time period or a probability of them leaving, mm -hmm. times the revenue that you get per time period. Yeah. Um, Accountants and finance people love them because you can basically build your your company's business off of projections through these. Data scientists probably don't interact with them enough. A lot of times, what you're projecting or what you're doing, like data science on, is components of a lifetime value model yeah. that's not ever being plugged into an actual yeah. lifetime value model of your customers. So I think that I don't know. Hopefully, that explains well enough what like what a lifetime value model is. Well, I mean, I think the standard sort of, so that, that describes what a lifetime value model is, but then the standard tension um, across a company is, you know, to what extent is this lifetime value model essentially representative or correct or right. predictive so me, of anything? Yeah. Let me pause again. Like, if you're at a startup and you bother to do your LTV calculations, the implica immediate short-run implica implication is always go out of business. <laughs> like, they always say, like, it almost always says, 
Like you're not, not every startup. <laughs> almost every startup. Like if you're doing like kind of if you're doing it right, like your 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 short run cost of acquisition is probably larger than what your your LTV is, unless you can change things to make it so that your yeah. your value extends. Which are which are which is the assumption right. you're generally gonna have. I shouldn't say go out of business. It yeah. is like the implication is you should do no marketing yeah. oftentimes until you've built uh, like built a better V on the LT portion or so, a better LT. It's like, but what I assume you're kind of driving at is 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 this idea that like if you're looking at the short term and long term components of this, like there's things you could optimize in the next three months that would be bad for the five year LTV. Um. So, so I I, I had sort of a, a different read, which was, I think there's this tension that arises at the uh, executive level between. Um, strategic initiatives yeah. and initiatives to enhance performance, where performance yeah. is measured by basically an LTV to yeah. CAC ratio. Yeah. So, like uh, customer acquisition cost, I, is is what I mean by CAC. Yeah. So, basically, the way that um, you know, if you were like a Las Vegas casino, or if you were you know a, a statistician, you would, or an economist looking at a business, you would say, okay, what's the customer lifetime value? What's the cost to acquire that yeah. customer? You know, make that ratio a good number. Make yeah. it such that the marginal CAC is equal to the marginal LTV. Yeah. And um, and then you've essentially you know solved and optimized your business. Mm -hmm. Typically, where that sort of butts heads is that negates some of one the changing components or the assumptions about what the future will hold. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other place that it butts heads is that there's this tension between you know achieving a local maximum versus a uh, global maximum. Yeah. So, um, in some sense, th that the global maximum, the idea of striving towards like that that highest possible performance of the company, tends to lead to what I call a lot of strategic initiatives. Yeah. And I despise the word strategic initiatives. Uh -huh. The strategic initiatives tend to mean initiatives that I don't have to defend <laughs> because they're strategic. Yeah. Um, and of course, we want to do strategic things. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I find that like I find that to be the tr trickiest part of interacting with like the C level at any company I've ever worked on. Right, is like there is it's often really obvious what the short run optimization is. Mm -hmm. Right, like you may, you almost never need to explain that. But it always, it's always worth it to do it. Mm -hmm. um, and then that butts up against the like what are the what are the strategic things we're we're going to do, and do those. Like those should be applied. There should be some sort of logical test about what those are, but yeah. it's really like it's all assumptions about the future that are really hard to ground in in any sort of reality. Yeah, I mean, I I, I, I just find that to be difficult as far as decision making goes in general, right? Because like if I think about my own decision making, right, like I would like to be optimizing for the long run. <laughs> Uh, some of that involves like basically making some kind of leveraged bet about the future where like I don't necessarily have all of the information to like do the, the like LTV over CAC equivalent calculation, right? Or if I did that, like what it would basically say is don't do this because this doesn't work yet, <laughs> right? But but at the same time, like knowing that like, okay, in, 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 in some cases, not in all cases, the, the future is not going to look like, like the past. And so then understanding like, okay, well, how might this shift things? Therefore, like, would I put chips on the table here or not? Like, 
at the end of the day, that's that is actually how you create wealth. <laughs> and so and so like it's like like even even as a person, you have to figure out how to how to balance that. Yeah. Well, the first thing I'd say is you're always seeking uh, like a long run max. Yeah. You're, there, there is no such thing as a short run max. Yeah. Now, it might be the case that the only thing that you actually have information on that you can make a valuable decision about is the present. Yeah. Um, but very often, you know, major misestimations of future or future trends yeah. uh, lead to big discrepancies between sort of short run optimization and, and yeah. long run optimization. Yeah. I, I mean, I would, I would push on that uh, a little bit, right? Because, you know, if I look at like crypto as an example, for, for, for instance, like, like the future of that is obviously like incredibly unknown, mm-hmm. right? But like you do have to like look at well, how do I think these ecosystems are going to evolve? Does this, you know, is there a five to ten year time frame where like this thing like legitimately drives value? And if that happens, even if the probability is small, like is the value large enough such that some kind of leverage bet is worth it? But there was also the short run. Right. In terms of like if you were just like watching market dynamics in, you know, call it like late 2016 through like beginning of 2018, like if if you optimized entirely for the long run through that period, like you either would have like missed the opportunity to like to like capture a little bit of gain uh, or you also like potentially could have lost a lar- like a, a large amount of well, money. I think too. This, this is tricky <laughs> because there's a very big difference between thinking about it as an executive or a decision yeah. maker within a company and as an investor. Yes. Like in as an investor, I sort of don't believe in the long run, right? Like it, it like if you believe that in if you have information that says in the short run this will tank, in the long run it'll be fine, then your move is too short the thing yeah right well or just wait. and like you have you have low transaction yeah. costs of moving yeah. from industry to industry when you're embedded in a company yeah then like then the strategic like you have to use a weak anthropic principle of like well given that my company is viable <laughs> like these are the decisions that i think would keep it viable given what i think about the, the world outside you know they could always leave <laughs> um but like it is like a higher transaction cost to like change your mind about what the, the like the strategic forces moving around uh, um, a thing in the marketplace are. Well, I mean, like I I think there's some nuance to that too, though, right? Because because basically, like there's something that could be on say a five year time horizon, like absolutely the right the right decision, and like you have a lot of conviction about that, and you even have information that says like on a five year time horizon we should be doing this. But you but but where you can also say, like, given where we're at right now, like we actually shouldn't do this right now, because if we did it right now, like we'll be in the same place in five years. But if I do it now, it's going to cost me like X percent of my resources versus if I wait a year to do it, it, like like the cost could be less. The company, the company positioning could be could be better. And so, and so, like, I, you know, there, there's a timing aspect to this in terms of like getting to the long term. Yeah, I mean, I tend to feel like a lot of this is incorporated in the price. I mean, I, yeah. I, I, I tend to be on the efficient side 
uh, of this. You know, I, I do believe in, in, in bubbles existing and, and psychological principles. I actually mentioned at the start of the show that I did a PhD in economics. More specifically, I did a PhD in behavioral economics, which really, you know, kind of drinks this stuff up. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you know, the sort of example you gave around uh, crypto, of course, in hindsight, does look like, boy, that would have been a great sort of uh, ride to have an investment in. But at the same time, there's a, you know, uh, there's a, there was a variety of uncertainty around that market. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, I think that a lot of that uncertainty is baked into um, the price and a lot of the expectation for how, how that might be used. Now, I, I, I sort of promised myself to avoid, I, I'm in the cannabis industry, so I really deeply try to avoid conversations about crypto or I become <laughs> way too uh, San Francisco cliche. Uh, um, just jump right in the pool, man. <laughs> I, gotta, I gotta just dip my toe in, that's it. Okay, well, I think that we are basically out of time. Um, I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you, Fish, for joining us. Yeah, this was awesome. Yeah, tons of fun. Great to reconnect with both of you guys. Do you have anything you want to plug while you're on here? Um, of course, how could I not plug Ease? Mm -hmm. um, cannabis on demand, um, safe, convenient, uh, easy access, uh, and very great prices uh, facilitating transactions in the cannabis space. Uh, what about something bacon related? <laughs> what what a mess! So um, uh, I uh, thank you, Otis, for that setup. Um, I also uh, own and operate uh, Bacon Hot Sauce, the world's greatest bacon flavored hot sauce. Baconhotsauce.com, um, and I'm very proud to be a very data driven uh, hot sauce company. Great. Um, and again, so the, if you want to reach out to us, um, you can get us on Twitter at of differences. Um, the email address is feed.back at smalldiffcast.com. Um, I'm Otis Anderson, and you can get me at Old Jacket on Twitter. Uh, Ian Blumenfeld, and at Ian Blue One on Twitter. Thank you for listening.